Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for joining Biltmore Church Online. Uh, before we jump into God's word, let me just say a, a quick word of thanks to the church. Uh, church, thanks for being uh, God's messengers in the midst uh, of a mess. Uh, you guys have stepped up this last month or so in thousands of individual ways and a number of different corporate ways and congregational ways from, again, uh, 400 families uh, serving them to uh, groceries to our local 828 partners. There's a lot more coming soon that we'll tell you about in the weeks ahead. Uh, what I want to do now that you might have already heard about, we announced it on Thursday and it already just went crazy uh, viral, but I know a lot of times uh, we're looking for ways, how do I give back? All right, how do I give back? And so what we've done is basically Biltmore Church has designed these shirts, all right? They designed and we produced these shirts. Uh, and what they'll do is they'll be, number one, a reminder to pray for all the people uh, that are impacted by this pandemic, all right? It just simply says 828 strong, 828 strong. And so it's a hopefully be a prayer reminder to, uh, for the people who've been impacted, but even, even also 100%, 100% of the proceeds uh, from the sale of these shirts uh, goes to a relief fund, all right? A COVID relief fund set up to help our neighbors, uh, set up to help our people on the front lines uh, as well. And uh, again, we, we announced it on a Facebook Live on Thursday. And I know within an hour, there's always many, many, within an hour, there's always many hundreds of shirts going out. I don't know how many uh, at this point. But anyway, here's what we're going to do. We'll order more if we need to. Uh, for all that information, uh, go to A28strong.com. All right, A28strong.com. And again, uh, just to be clear, uh, the shirts are actually $30, and 30 out of the $30 will go toward that relief fund, all right? So again, be generous. You guys always are. We're trying to demonstrate the gospel. We declare the gospel. We demonstrate the gospel. We demonstrate it. We're generous with our neighbors because God has been generous to us. We love our neighbors. Why? Because God has loved us, all right? Um, so anyway, great job on that. And uh, without any further ado, we're going to start a teaching series today called uh, What Do We Do? What Do We Do in when life gets hard, and it'll be it'll be three or four weeks. Uh, my friend Clayton King he'll help us one of those weeks as well. Uh, but this is super important because when life gets very difficult, like it is right now for so so many people, uh, when life gets really difficult, when life gets really hard, there tends to be uh, one of three results. All right, the first one would be you can you can end up coming out of this whole thing with a lost faith, all right? A lost faith is basically either bitterness toward God or anger toward God, or I don't want anything to do with God, all right? If he's gonna treat me like this, then I just forget him. And you see that all, all the time, not just in big, massive, worldwide pandemics, but you see these in situations of cancer or tragedies, tragic situations. A classic example or a you know, a well-known example is actually Ted Turner. Ted Turner had like back-to-back -back tragedies in his life. He had a sister that was sick and battled sickness for a long, long time. She finally died. And then right after her death, her, his dad was so grieved by her death, he said, if God's like this, I don't want anything to do with him at all, went up and took his own life. And then Turner's like, man, if this is what God's like, forget that. So that's a tragic one, but it does happen. People just lose their faith. Uh, sometimes it's the fact that we just end up uh, with a shallow, superficial faith. What I mean by that is oftentimes, especially, you know, especially people who kind of inherit their faith from their parents or grandparents, they never make it really personal. What happens is they, they have these difficult questions and it could be about suffering. It could be about pain. It could be about difficult doctrines, whatever it is. 
but they never really wanna ask the difficult questions about it and they never really wanna wade into, primarily because they're just afraid about what they might find. They don't wanna look under the covers of their faith because they don't really wanna know what's in there. But the problem with that is if we never ask the hard questions and ask God the hard questions and dive into these issues, then we never really own our faith. And what we tend to have is just a superficial faith that really has not thought deeply about the tough questions. What we wanna have, what we wanna have and what we're trying to talk about in this series is we want a matured, stronger faith. Even in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the despair, even in the midst of the doubt, we want to uh, come out of this with a stronger faith. And doubt, uh, the old British 19th century preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon, he said doubt, told his congregation, doubt is like a foot poised in the air to either step forward in faith or step backward in disbelief. He says, but either way, what will happen is God will put you in certain circumstances where you could have doubt which way and whichever way you go, it is an opportunity for you to step forward or it is a temptation for you to step backwards. And so what we're gonna do today to start the series off is we're gonna look at a man that other than Jesus suffered more than anybody else in the Bible. As a matter of fact, his name is synonymous with pain and suffering and confusion. Even if you don't go to church, you probably have heard his name mentioned. His name is Job. And the book of Job is oftentimes misunderstood because it is a super emotional book. It's very emotional. You see Job asking some difficult questions. You see Job going through some great suffering, but he's asking the questions that we ask as well. We might not ask them externally, we ask them internally, but it's like, why me? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why is this happening? So just so you know, what we do at our church is we just take a passage of the scriptures and we study it and bring the points from it. It's gonna take me a few minutes to get there. Where we're gonna be eventually is we're gonna be in chapter 42, the last chapter of the book of Job. But to get there, I'm gonna need, because it's 42 chapters, I'm gonna need to give you kind of an overview of uh, the first, kind of the first at least 37, then really kind of almost going up to our, our focal passage. Uh, so let me give you a couple of deals just contextually about Job. And the contextual issues are there's not a whole lot of context, all right? He is, uh, it's set in a place called the land of Uz, which we don't know where that is. We don't know the exact time frame in which uh, this is being uh, referred to. There's a lot of stuff we don't know about Job and scholars say that it almost seems intentional that the author left these ambiguous so that we wouldn't be so focused on Job's specifics as opposed to the universal lessons that we need to learn and the universal questions that Job asks in the story. But right off the bat, here's the way the story starts in chapter one, verse one. It says, Job was blameless and up, he was a blameless and upright man. What that basically means is I mean, Job was a good guy. He was like the best of the best, all right? When he looked around, if you're trying to pick the guy that was the most godly guy in that time frame, it would have been, it would have been Job. And that only happens for like five verses. And by verse six, what happens is you are somehow whisked off to a staff meeting that God is having. And in the midst of the staff meeting is this kind of crazy little fella, and it's actually pronounced Satan, all right? It means, it means accuser or prosecutor. And he basically challenges God by saying this, the reason that Job serves you, the reason that Job obeys you, the reason that Job fears you is not because he loves you, it's because of what you do for him. 
In other words, Job doesn't love you, he just loves your stuff. To you, or to Job, you are just useful. That's the reason, and as a matter of fact, if you take off that hedge of protection, he will basically curse you and die. And God gives Satan permission to bring some havoc on Job's life. And in a matter of verses, and we don't know the exact time frame on how long this took, but everything that Job counted as precious was taken away from him. His finances, his family, his health, all that stuff was taken away from him in just a matter of moments. And what you would expect when you read the book is that after those scenes happen, then uh, as Job asked the question, why would God allow this? You would assume that the rest of the book is gonna answer that question, and it doesn't. The rest of the book does not answer that question specifically. It's not what you get. Fast forward to chapter four, and there's a few friends that come into Job's life. Now, the good part about friends are they do show up, all right? Uh, I still remember to this day, the morning that I woke up as a teenager and my dad had died, I still remember to this day uh, the next door neighbor who walked across the street, sat there on my bed as I just cried like a 16-year-old, not having any clue. I still remember that. I'm still grateful for it. So the good news is you got these three friends who do show up. Uh, the bad news is uh, these three friends try to answer the question, why did this happen? And what you see is a mixture of kind of Near East wisdom mixed in with what we would call karma today, mixed in with a good dose of religion. Basically, they say this. They say, Job, we know God is just, and we know everything happens for a reason. And if God is just and everything happens for a reason, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something to deserve this. I mean, God would not let all of this happen unless in some way you'd really messed up. And so what happens for the next 30 some odd chapters is Job is basically telling these guys, look, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I'm sinless. I'm not saying I'm flawless, but I have not done anything to deserve this. So all the way up until chapter 37, and then the friends leave. And when the friends leave, Job is still asking why. Well, in chapter 38, God shows up. And when God shows up, he answers Job's why me with some questions of his own. And the questions that he poses to Job is where were you? And what he proceeds to do is he responds to Job's accusations of, because he gets pretty blunt, to God, you are incompetent. What are you allowing this to happen for? So he replies to Job's, you know, why God to Job's being asked the question, where were you? And he gives him a basically a virtual tour of the universe. And it's not just one question. He asks 64 questions over just a few chapters of all different shapes and sizes. Some were like super, super big questions. Like, where were you, Job, when I made the earth? Where were you, Job, when I put the stars in place? Where were you when I put the seas where they are? Where were you? And at this point, Job starts to go like, I am not prepared for this quiz. I remember in seminary, there was a prof I had, very beloved prof named uh, Dr. Roy Fish. And while he was a great prof, what he had a tendency to do was just show up unexpected with a pop quiz. And I remember he'd walk in the room and he was like, all right, take out your pens and a piece of paper. We're gonna have a little pop quiz. 
And what that meant was if you were not like current with your studies, you were unprepared to take the quiz. You didn't have the knowledge. You didn't know what to say. That's how Job is feeling right now. I don't know what to say, but God's not done yet. He goes from like the universe. He goes into the Man, do you even know how animals work? He talks about little tiny stuff like how goats reproduce and why ostriches are ugly and you know, what's the GPS system in a donkey, all this kind of stuff he asks them. Around chapter 40, Job starts realizing he is like way above his pay grade. Or he's like, man, I am, I, am, I, am, I am way above my pay grade. I don't know how to answer this at all. But even then, God is not uh, finished yet. He's basically, Job, while we're at it, uh, how do you even know how justice works, all right? You think, you think this is a super easy universe? It's not. It kind of reminds me in a, what's that great theologian, Jim Carrey, uh, he, uh, in Bruce Almighty. He goes, he's answering all those uh, prayer requests or whatever, he's God for a day or whatever, and he's answering, all, and he starts like, he's like, man, this is more complicated. What happens when this prayer request contradicts this prayer request, which contradicts this prayer request, all right? So that's kind of what it is. I, didn't, I don't think I've ever used Jim Carrey compared to God before, but that's basically what Job is feeling at this point. So with no further ado, let's jump to our kind of our focal passage. All right, I'm in the last chapter, chapter 42. I'm just gonna read the six verses and I'm gonna try to draw out a few principles about how do we meet God in the mess, all right? Last thing we wanna do is whenever this thing gets finished, this pandemic gets finished, when the healing begins, we don't want to go, man, I missed God. I missed what God was trying to do. So here's the way the verses go. Again, all this has happened. Now God's finished talking. Here's Job's response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose, we'll come back to this one, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now it has a little, little uh, quotation marks. What he's actually saying, this is the first thing that God said way back when he started quizzing Job. And so Job is basically then saying, this is what you said to me. He's like, who is this that hides now counsel without knowledge? Therefore, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. This is confession. I didn't understand it. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you. It's again, back in brackets again. And you make it known to me. Again, that's what God said to hear. It's like, you be quiet, I'm gonna speak. I, and this is a, listen to these last two verses. This is a conclusion of the fact that he met God in the mess. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, maybe he got it from his grandmom, whatever he got it. I'd heard about you. You know, I went to church some heard some good sermons about you. You know, I might have even done some good things. I'd heard about you, but the contrast is, but now my eye sees you. I've gone from hearing about you to knowing you. I've gone from rumor to a relationship. And here's the last verse. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. All right, um, there's a few lessons here and I don't want to be harsh today because I know some of you are in more pain than I can even imagine. There's pain, there's financial pain, relational pain, there's a lot of pain. And so I want to be empathetic, but even more so, I want to be instructive enough to say what you don't want to do is miss what God wants to do in your life in the midst of this trial that so many people are going through. 
And so when I looked at this passage to be the first one we start off with, some of the things just jumped out. Let me show you the first one. And these are things that I want you to think of as, I need to be able to say this in order to get me in the posture in which to get what God wants to give me in the midst of this. The first one is this. It's, it's humbly saying that, you know what? It's acknowledging that my perspective, my viewpoint, my perspective is, is limited. That's a lot of what God's trying to get there. Verse three, he says, I, I said some stuff I don't understand. There's some stuff I didn't know. I didn't understand stars. I didn't understand goats. I didn't understand ostriches, much less that there's an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God behind it all. I just did, I didn't know. My perspective was limited. Uh, the uh, kind of the parallel that we used to live in Houston, Texas. And when we lived in Houston, down South Houston is a place called NASA. And so when our boys were small, we would frequently or periodically, we would go down there, make a day of it. We'd do a tour at, at NASA. They, you know, have rockets and space shuttles and all this cool, cool stuff. I mean, my five-year-olds were like, this is awesome. We had to be careful because even at our church, we had people that were literally were rocket scientists. You know how he's like, he's like, what are you, a rocket scientist? And you had to be careful because sometimes they go, yeah, actually, I'm a rocket scientist at NASA. So all that being said, the way that Job is feeling is the way that a five-year-old, let's say my five-year-old had gone up to a rocket scientist and was like, hey, your rocket's wrong. The rocket's wrong, all right? It's too much weight. The space shuttle has the wrong color. You need to fix this. You know, my guess would be at first, maybe the rocket scientist would try to verbally explain to my little five-year-old, hey, no, the color needs to be this because this, or uh, maybe he would, you know, differential equations mean this. Maybe he would do that, but more than likely after about a minute, he'd say, you know what, son? All right, why don't you just... Why don't you just sit there and watch, all right, Scooter? Why don't you just sit there for a few minutes and when the rocket launches, you'll see that we actually know what we're doing. That's really the way God treats Job. And here's what you gotta remember. We know more than Job knew. See, we, got the, we have the inside of the first couple of chapters about the whole thing going on behind the scenes. Job did not even do that. Here's what I don't want you to hear. What I don't want you to hear is that it's wrong to ask God the hard questions. Don't hear that. That's not, that's not even what this is teaching. And nor does the Bible talk about the fact that you can't get super honest with God. I mean, the psalmist, read the Psalms sometime. They do some, que- they do some questions toward God. You don't read in your daily bread. You're not gonna see on some Hallmark cards. You're not gonna see on a needle point. It's like, how long will you forsake me, God? That doesn't sound like a great one. How long, God, are you gonna let the wicked rule the righteous? I mean, that doesn't sound like that. Read some of the way the language, some of the great people of God talk to God about. I mean, read Jeremiah 20 sometime. It's like, God, you seduced me into being a prophet. You're like, well, man, didn't he get struck by lightning? He didn't. He didn't at all. All this is talking about is understand that I have a limited uh, perspective. And so when I ask these questions or when I share with God, just do so realizing that at minimum, you can understand because you understand the cross of Christ, it shows us a few things that your pain and our suffering cannot mean. Right? Number one, it cannot mean, it cannot mean that God does not care. I mean, you gotta understand that because it feels like that sometimes. You cannot, you cannot think that God does not care. We serve a God who who didn't just say he cares, he actually enters into our suffering. When he's down on the cross, Peter would later say, listen, he suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The psalmist would put it this way. He said, said, God is near to the brokenhearted 
and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so God does care. Another place in the Psalm says he hides your tears in a bottle. Hides your tears in a bottle. So when you're crying out to God, he's not missing that. He's not callous at all. He, can, he actually rolls up his sleeves and draws closer to you in a trial more so than any other time. So God, God does care. Second thing you can't, you can't believe because of the cross of Christ is you can't believe that God somehow is out of control. It's just kind of out of control. It's just kind of a random planet. You cannot think that. I mean, think about the one time that the world looked most out of control. When it looked like evil had won. When was it? It's when the son of God, the sinless son of God is dying naked on a tree in front of a bunch of jeering Gentiles talking about, if you're the son of God, come down off that cross. It looked like evil had won. And God was more in control than he had ever been right then. He was gonna raise his son from the dead. And so it might feel out of control. It might, he might feel distant, but that is not the case. It can't mean that. And so just realize, I wanna meet with God, so my perspective is limited. My perspective is limited. Second thing I want you to get out of this passage is that God's purposes are very good. Now again, God's purposes are good. Verse two says, you know what? Your purposes will not be thwarted. They, they're gonna happen one way or the other. Now listen, one of the cool things about the book of Job is even though Job himself did not understand the purpose, we get to see the purposes in the book of Job that are also taught throughout the rest of the Bible. So let me tackle it this way. Let's tackle kind of the big, the big story and then let's talk about the small story. The big story is this. You know, what, what is the kind of the existential question? Why does God allow suffering? And that is, throughout history has always been the question that has stumped scholars. And typically the argument goes this way. I mean, I know there was a rabbi, I think it was Rabbi Kushner years ago, he basically wrote a book that was not biblical, but his idea was, his argument was, listen, either if God is good, he can't be powerful, or otherwise he would do something about it or he's powerful and he's not good, so he doesn't care enough to do something about it. Well, the Bible teaches that God is both powerful and immensely good. And so what do you do with that? Think about it this way. I think it was uh, uh, Augustine. Augustine was a bishop in Africa years and years and years ago. And he said a lot of times, we're, we're like a person who puts their face right up against a stained glass window. When you're right up against a stained glass window, all you can really see are the jagged edges. It looks like a bunch of chaos and broken glass and sharp edges and pain and what went on here. But then as you step back, you get to see like an awesome, beautiful design that was always there. And so he says, we as finite people, oftentimes we're like the right up next to it. We can't see it, but God is infinite. God is eternal. And so he can see the whole thing all at one time. So big picture, let me just give you a couple of bookends. We've talked about this at length and other times. We'll talk about it again. But just in general, if you want a couple of bookends just to try to put a metric together about the big picture of pain and suffering, there are two things we definitely know. Number one is that suffering is the result of a fallen world. It is. Uh, the Bible goes great for like two chapters. All right, Genesis one and two, awesome, no pain, no suffering, everything's great. Everything changes in chapter three. 
All right, so God made a good world, but the world he made is now broken, all right? Our sin has impacted everything. The effects, and here's what you gotta understand. The effects of sin impact, listen to me, they impact both Christians and non-Christians. This is why it is so arrogant when Christians say things like, well, the reason that tornado hit that strip bar was because God was judging them. The problem with that is what happens when the tornado hits the church? What happens when the tornado wipes out your home? See, the Bible says, you know what? It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. So that's common grace, but there's also common effect when it comes to sin is that, you know what? Christians get cancer. Christians die in car wrecks. Christians get COVID. Those things happen. And so suffering is a result of a fallen world on one side. Now, the book in that you got to put there is this is that God uses our suffering redemptively for his glory and for our good. Let me say it again. God, I know there's a lot of questions. Well, did God cause it? Did God allow it? Did, okay, just wait for a second. God uses our suffering for his glory. There's some things that he's gonna get glory from that he would get no other way, but also for our good. Uh, Romans 8, 28, classic, classic verse that is both great and misunderstood. It says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to talk about what that purpose is. For years, I thought, especially my first four or five years as a Christian, when I, that's one of the first verses you kind of memorize. I thought, well, God, all things are good. Listen to me. All things are not good. All things are not good. Cancer is not good, all right? Uh, car wrecks, not good. COVID, not good. A lot of stuff is not good, and that verse is not saying that. What the verse is saying is God is so good and God is so powerful that he can take the bad things, the bad, tragic things, work together is where we get our word synergy from. He can put them together and work them out in such a way as while the ingredients are bad, he will eventually take it and use it in a redemptive fashion for his glory and for our good. You're like, well, I don't really care about the big ethereal questions. I care about the pain I'm going through. So small picture, and this is not exhaustive, but let me just, let's take a few from the book. Sometimes it's what God wants to do through you. Tons of examples here. Um, Joseph. Joseph went through a lot of hell on earth. I mean, just read this story in Genesis. Joseph went through a bunch of junk, terrible stuff. But eventually what happened is God used Joseph to save, literally physically save thousands and thousands of people. And what Joseph in his maturity was able to say eventually was, you know what you all meant for evil, God meant for good. Why? Because God was going to use Joseph. The same thing with Moses. I mean, Moses didn't have a cush life at all. Why? Because God was preparing a man to lead his people out of slavery. And you can do the same thing with the apostle Paul and all the stuff he went through. He ended up being the greatest evangelist, church planner, preacher, theologian ever. And even Job. I mean, Job didn't know this, but how many, how many millions of Christians down through the years have been encouraged by the book of Job? Just read it and gotten strength from it and so God even took this situation and does good. And again, this is, um, you think about the stuff people go through. I'm not, again, I'm not saying it's good. What I'm saying is God can use it for good. And we've seen that 
It's not silver linings. Some of you are like, well, you know, there's always silver linings. It's not silver linings, it's a sovereign God. That's the whole point. The sovereign God could use this, and we've seen a little, we've seen snippets of this. We don't get to see it all, but even in the first three or four weeks, we've seen tons of stories of people coming to Christ that their family and relatives says, man, no way is that guy ever gonna pay any attention to God. And then all of a sudden, God gets a hold of them through this. They're stuck at home and they tune in and they come to Christ. We've had stories of marriages that got restored. Why? Because you know what? They were going parallel. They were just going parallel lives, you know, just taking the kids to this, taking the kids to that, never talking. And all of a sudden they got to stay home and now they're working through their issues. Um, as a matter of fact, some of you that are watching, I would say the majority of you are watching, especially if you came to Christ as an adult, in a general way, that's the way that God got your attention. I mean, basically you were walking along, kind of too sexy for your shirt, and God drops a boulder on your life. Now the boulder might be a bad marriage, it might be a health issue, it might be a pandemic, it might be whatever. He drops a boulder on your life to show you that you're not all that, but he still loves you. And so again, that's the way that it typically works, all right? C.S. Lewis says, pain is God's megaphone to a world that is not listening, all right? So sometimes it's for other people. Sometimes it's just what he wants to do in you as well. Job 14 says, Job, Job asked God, God, why are you treating me like a tree? I mean, you're just hacking and cutting and no sense of purpose. Why are you treating me like some tree? And... Um, God eventually answers, he's like, basically, I'm, 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 I'm not punishing you, I'm pruning you. I'm not punishing you, I'm pruning you. And by the way, if you're a Christ follower, you know that to be true 100% of the time. You don't get punished because Jesus was punished. And so any kind of refining that God is doing is not punishment, it is pruning. But basically, I'm doing something now that will serve you later. I'll give you two quick examples. I'll give you 50, but here's two. Um, two years ago, uh, my back, basically a disc had come out. It was pressing into the nerve center. Man, I just, I was hurting. I tried all the anti-inflammatories, all that stuff. Finally, I was like, man, I got to go get some uh, cortisone. And so I got, uh, I got a shot of cortisone. It didn't even touch it. I mean, it didn't even touch it. I could barely make it to the coffee maker. Didn't touch it. You got to wait a little bit before you get it. I got a second thing of cortisone. Didn't even touch it. I'm like, this is not helping at all. Well, I think the max is three cortisone shots. So I go in there in the last time and the doctor who uh, actually goes to our church, he goes, uh, I still remember because I was like, because the first two, I, I was interested, the first two shots didn't really hurt. I, the needle's like this and it didn't hurt that bad. It, you know, it's just like, I, man, it didn't hurt that bad. But the third one, the doc says, hey, pastor, um, which is interesting, he'd called me Bruce the first two times and he called me pastor and it made me nervous as well. So he goes, pastor, uh, I gotta put this, I gotta put this needle right into the nerve. And I remember him saying, he goes, he goes, I gotta hurt you to help you. And man, I'm serious, I'm laying on my table and he put that thing, I just lit up off of that table cause it hurt really bad, but you know what happened? Man, in like two days, that thing, all that inflammation, all that stuff, I felt like a million bucks. Now, when he said, I got to hurt you to help you, I'm like, I'm going to hurt you if you hurt me. But what he said was true. Now, there's a thousand ways we could, some of you can, depending on your age bracket, here's another one. Remember uh, Karate Kid? Karate Kid. I mean, what, what's the whole thing about Mr. Miyagi teaching whatever his name is? 
Mr. Miyagi's like, what? You know, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Whatever he did with that whole ceiling, floor, whatever. And the whole time he's like, man, this is stupid. I didn't come over here to wax your car. I came over here to learn karate, learn how to defend myself. I'm getting beat up at school. And it's like later on in the movie, he's like, okay, that's teaching me how to block. That's teaching me how to punch. That's teaching me how to defend myself. But at the time, all it did is it felt meaningless. And so here's what I'm saying is people say, well, did God allow it? Did God cause it? Did God permit it? Whatever. Those are questions we can deal with another time. All I would say is he could stop it, but he has chosen not to. And if he's chosen not to at this point, he means to make it work for your good. And again, when he's doing this, just realize God's not a butcher. God's not some butcher going in there hacking different. God's a surgeon. And so could there be some things God's pruning off of your life? Absolutely. That's one of the reasons, one of the purposes. Let me give you this last one. And this is really, this was like revelatory for me revisiting the book of Job. And that is, and this, I put this in the form of a prayer that you're, if you're like, I want to get, I want to meet with God in the mess. At some point, I want to be able to say your, meaning God, your presence, your presence is enough. Your presence is enough. This is, this is so cool about the whole book of Job, the start of the book at the start of the book, Job wants answers from God. By the end of the book, all Job wants is God. At the front of the book, he's like, I need some explanations, all right? I need my questions answered. God, now, then, now at the end of the book, all he's like, doesn't even answer his questions and God just gave him himself. And you know, as soon as Job saw who God was and how big God was, it satisfied Job. And if you notice, it satisfies him even before God restores all of his stuff. Before God gives him a family, before God gives him better friends, before God gives him his fortune back, he's like, you know what? I've learned you're enough. Now, here's what I want to ask. I want to ask you a couple questions before we close up. Verse five and six says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. So he's contrasting. I used to kind of know you about, now I know you. But here's the part. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here's a question. What's Job repenting of? What's he repenting of? Chapter one, verse one says, man, Job is like a blameless and upright man and he fears the Lord and he turns away from evil. So what's he repenting of? You remember how the story started also? The story started with basically an accusation to say, the reason that Job worships you, the reason that Job follows you, the reason that Job obeys you, the reason that Job walks with you is because you are useful to him. It's because of what you do for him. He doesn't love you for you. He loves you because of what you do for him. As I thought about it, could it be that there was some truth in that? some truth in that. I mean, God had blessed Job amazingly and then Job had obeyed God. And right after all that stuff started getting taken away, what happened is Job starts like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. God, you're not acting right. God, you owe me better. I'm disappointed in you, God. And as I thought about it, I was like, that's the way I talk to, that's the way I talk to my computer when it doesn't get online quick enough. That's the way I talk to a phone app when it's not finding the proper restaurant within my proximity. 
And we tend to think that our explanations would, under, would, would basically satisfy us. We're kind of like Job's friend. You know what, God, if you'll, if you'll explain all of this to me, then I will be satisfied. In reality, if God were to come along and say, this is the reason that you're suffering, this is the reason your marriage is all, this is the reason you're fine. If he were to say, this is what I'm doing, the explanation wouldn't satisfy you as much as his presence would satisfy you. So here's a question. When Job says, I heard about you, but now I see you, what he's saying is, it used to be something that was impersonal and good and it was religious, but now I see you, he's saying, this is personal for me now. And so the easy question is, is God useful to you or is God beautiful to you? Is God useful to you? Hey, I heard about him. He's good. He makes, you know, he's good for my marriage. I want my kids to kind of learn. That's why we're tuning into this deal. Or is God beautiful to you because of who he is? Keller makes it spot on when he says, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. So is he personal to you? What do I mean personal? We're talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. A personal relationship with God means basically you're like, you know, you understand that I don't, you don't have to suffer for your sin. Why? Because Jesus suffered for your sin. So has there ever been a time when you actually embrace Christ by faith by saying, God, you're the one that was abandoned so I wouldn't have to be. You were the one that was punished so I would not have to be punished. Have you ever said, you know what? That was my sin that put you on the cross. What you did on that cross somehow counted for me and so as best I know, I am saying, you know what? I'm asking you to save me. I'm also asking you to be my boss, all right? You're the boss now. I'm not the boss. I wanna be a follower of you. Have you ever done that? That's where it goes from I heard about you to now I see you. Because when you look down to it, the whole thing, the whole thing, it's like, why would we do this? Why would we do this? Because sometimes you're gonna get wounded. You're gonna get wounded. You don't get to audit this class. You're gonna get wounded, but what the, what the satisfaction is, is knowing that, you know what? I have a God that was wounded for me so that he can eventually heal me completely. You know what? I feel abandoned sometime. Well, you know what? What you understand is I have a God who was abandoned for me on the cross so that one day then he would embrace me personally. That's what it is. And uh, when you think about how does God move all this stuff together? Here's kind of what, here's kind of what I thought about. There's a kind of a well-known story way back in the 50s uh, about a group of missionaries that went to Ecuador and reached out to a group called the Alca Indians who basically were, you know, they'd cut themselves off from pretty much anybody else and were known to be amazingly violent people. And um, anyway, these missionaries prayed about it. They felt God wanted them to go in there. And the well-known story is, uh, there's a movie made about it is they went in there and tried to make some connection with them. And eventually they basically got an audience with them, uh, but then they killed the missionaries, all right? They killed all five of them. They made the news and there's a lot of questions like why would those guys, guys like Jim Elliott and these other guys, why would they, why would they give everything to go reach some Indians in some far off jungle? And what's amazing is, is uh, Several of, the, several of the people, probably the most famous person was the wife of one of the missionaries. His name was Jim Elliott. Her name was uh, Elizabeth Elliott. Here's a quote that she actually says, because 
what's amazing is Elizabeth Elliot eventually went down there as well later on, and then God did something spectacular there, and all of a sudden the gospel penetrated that place, and Indian after Indian, Ecuadorian after Ecuadorian, they all started coming to faith in Christ, and the gospel just spread. Elizabeth Elliot says this. She says, God never gives a thorn without his added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. This is the widow, this is the widow of one of those missionaries. And the reason, especially if you're a Biltmore church, you ought to understand this and how this whole thing can come full circle is did you know that right now, right now, there's a child development center that we are building and partnering with Compassion International that was basically allotted to us, a couple acres that was allotted to us by the Alka Indians like a year ago so that we could basically go in there, put a child development center, release children from the bonds of poverty in Jesus' name and spread the gospel to more families. That's a big God. And so we wanna meet God in the mess and you can meet God in the mess. So I tell you what, before I pray for you, if you do this, um, especially if you have some other people, if you're around there with your family, uh, I want your prayer to be basically, God, would you be the, would you be the God of this family? Would you be the God of this family? And so if you do have some other people with you, if you have kids or brothers and sisters, and I mean, just, just kind of grab each other by the hand. Let me pray for you. And then our service will almost be over, okay? Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for being a big, big, big God. God, thanks for being a God that we can't even understand. But God, you're a phenomenal God who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. Got to pray for these individuals and families who are going through all sorts of messy things, difficult things, painful things, relationally, financially, physically, all those things. Got to pray, for, especially for those that are followers of Jesus, that you would work in our families so that we could then show the joy of being followers of Jesus, even in the midst of the pain. God, our prayer is that when this thing's over, we would be saying like Job said in like chapter 23, you know what? He has tried me, but I have come forth as gold. God, in this trial, in this difficulty, when life is hard, help us to understand our perspective is limited and your presence is what we need. So God, pour yourself out on these families during this time and we'll thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.